Last week, as part of our Being Human series, we looked at telling stories. It's one of the things we do as human beings, and we thought in practical terms as we discussed that and, and listened to some of the stories that people had brought with them and uh, listened to one of our favorite uh, stories. And if you missed all of that, well, ask somebody who was here last week and they'll tell you what the books were and what the stories were, including Henry's sunbath. One of the things we considered as, as we brought all this to an end was simply that when it comes to the Bible, we should read the Bible as one big story. Uh, we thought about how God speaks to us in the individual incidents and stories that are recorded for us in the Bible. And we thought about how the, main, the whole main point of the story is Jesus and the whole nature of what that reveals to us about ourselves. Um, since last Sunday, more people have been telling me stories. Somebody even very kindly dropped a CD through my door when I wasn't there. And I've been thinking about stories as well. And this morning, um, what I'd like to do is to sort of tell a Bible story. Well, we're going to look at it together. It is, I think, one of the most interesting stories uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, Ralph Davies, uh, Ralph, Dale Ralph Davies, in his little commentary, um, The Wisdom and the Folly and Exposition of the Book of First Kings. And if, if you find the Old Testament, particularly the history books, a bit difficult and impenetrable, get your hands on some of uh, Dale Ralph Davies' commentaries. Uh, this one, The Wisdom and the Folly, is great. He writes completely differently from what you might expect from a, a Bible commentary. He's a very able scholar, um, and he's got lots of very interesting things to say. But at the beginning of the story that we're going to look at today, he says this. He calls it a tale of two prophets. And he says, by using the term tale in the chapter title, I'm not denying the historicity or the having happenedness of this story. But I'm merely underscoring the strangeness of it. The story has a bizarre ring to it. One wonders if a slight smile idled on the sacred writer's face as he wrote it up. Since he had determined not to answer all the questions of the curious. And so knew how elusive later readers might find his narrative. Biblical writers are no mean artists. This one has made history as teasing this parable. We're going to have a look at it together this morning. So you might like to start by turning in the book of Kings, First Kings, um, to page 350. And I want to look at this story uh, in three ways, just to give a little bit of background, to hear the story, and then just to draw three simple lessons from it. Now, as you hear this story and as you get the picture in the background, I'd be interested to know what questions it raises for you and what issues it raises for you. I'd be interested to know what are the bits that you would like to know that the story doesn't tell you. This is a masterful piece of writing. And I'd also be interested to know what you think is going on. So I'd like you to not just take what I have to say about this passage of Scripture and assume that that's the be-all and the end-all. You need to work with this. Um, take it with you, work with it during the week, think on it, reflect on it, see what all there is to learn from it. The story itself is actually 1 Kings chapter 13, which is just over the page on page 353. But before we get to it, we need to set a little bit of context. Okay? So here's the context, and it begins really in chapter 11, verses 3 to 6, which is why we're starting on page 350. This is a reference about Solomon. Okay? Solomon had 700 wives. You know who Solomon was. Solomon was the son of King David. King David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And under him, um, Israel was a great nation. 
if you take a look at the map that's on the screen there, that green area was all the land and territory that David held. The rest of it around him was territory that largely paid taxes to him, um, and he had a fair influence over or say over. So the empire under David was great. Solomon came after him, a very wise man, very learned man in many ways. But here's what the scripture says to us in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. I think he has to take a fair bit of responsibility for that himself. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. So this great empire, with this great king Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, by the end of his life, was in peril, because he himself had moved significantly. And verse 14 of the same chapter says that the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary called Hadad. And it also then tells us when you go down to verse 26 of the same chapter that also Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerada, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. And here's the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built supporting terraces and had filled the gap in the wall of the city of David his father. And Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. Now, Jeroboam is in the family line of Joseph. He's a, an Ephraimite. That means he's a descendant, a direct descendant of Joseph. And he's clearly a very leading character within that tribe and within that family. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David Solomon's father did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose. And observe my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and I will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt and to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. Now clearly the word got out. Clearly 
the ten pieces of cloth that Jeroboam had in his hand became known in the community. It may well have been that he raised a small army and rebelled against Solomon. We don't know the actual details, but we know that Solomon heard this prophecy. Solomon knew exactly what the issues were, and Solomon, this great wise king, tried to kill Jeroboam. Tried, in some way, to deal with what had been said by the servant of God. Well, let's look a little bit further as we go through this story. In chapter 12... Um, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, comes to the throne. Look at what it says in verse 2. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, that's the people, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam. And they basically said to Rehoboam, look, you've got to change the way things are happening here. You've got to ease the tax burden. You've got to show a bit more respect for the people. And Rehoboam wasn't having anything of it. Rehoboam was an arrogant young man. And he called together his friends, and in their mutual arrogance, they said, basically, what we're going to do is we're going to make it worse. If you thought things were bad under Solomon, you've seen nothing yet, which was a rather stupid thing to do. And basically, the people of Israel then said to Jeroboam, remembering the ten pieces of cloth that had been given to him by the prophet, look, come on, we'll make you our king, and fulfilled the prophecy that had been made by Ahijah the prophet. And Rehoboam realizing that he was losing the kingdom, tried to muster an army, was going to go against him, uh, and basically received a message from God, a word from God, not to bother, because you're not going to win. And that's basically the way it was. So there was a completely bloodless coup in Israel. And what was once a great kingdom like this, now on this little map you can see, is basically just divided in two, just north of Jerusalem there. The whole section marked in red becomes known as Israel. The southern section from now on becomes known as Judah. That's why you might get confused sometimes when you're reading the books of Kings and Chronicles about which is Israel and which is Judah and what's what. You now have this great division and you have Jeroboam, king of Israel, with this incredible promise from God that he can rule over whatever his heart's desire may be and that God will make his dynasty as great as David's. Here's the makings of a second Joseph, like his great ancestor. He's going to be a great leader. He's going to be a very significant person. But things don't quite work out that way. Look at what it says in verse uh, 25, sorry, verse 26 of 1 Kings chapter 12 on page 352. Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on the high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. 
So what happens here is, if you look at this map, which is a slightly bigger map of the whole area, in the region of Dan, which is right up on his northern border, and in the region of Bethel, which is a very historic place in the history of the people of Israel, and right on the border with Judah, you can see the border line just running across there to the top of the Dead Sea, he builds another altar. And he builds golden calves. Do you remember the background to all of that? Moses is up the mountain receiving the word from God. And he comes back down and the people have been impatient. And they've built a golden calf and they're worshipping that. It's all part of their tradition. It all ties in with things that they may have heard about in the past. Certainly would have known about. And basically his concern is that if the people keep coming here to Jerusalem to the temple, to worship in Solomon's great temple, there may just start in their hearts and minds this longing to go back to the days. Do you know what it was like when David was king? It was great in those days. We were all one nation. And Jeroboam's afraid that he might just lose the loyalty and the allegiance of the people. So he sets up altars on his northern and his southern border within miles of Jerusalem. Bethel is about six miles from the border with Judah. And he has established a whole new approach to worship. He doesn't worry about the Levites, that special community of people who were there to serve God. He starts appointing priests just from the ordinary people. You know, it's great when you have everybody on your side. And it's great when everybody can feel they can all be part of the action. And that's what he was doing. He was no fool with Jeroboam. So, that's the background. Here's the story. 1 Kings 13. By the word of the Lord... A man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. This is the inauguration of a whole new tradition, a whole new religion, a whole new set of priests. You can't imagine anything bigger than this. This nice brand new king who's got the bigger chunk of Israel is about to initiate something here which has never been seen before. So this man comes, this man of God. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign The Lord has declared the altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam, and no doubt the hundreds of thousands of people who were there, heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. He was paralyzed. Also, The altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, standing there with his hand out, paralyzed, unable to bring it back in, and the altar behind him split. Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, Come home with me and have something to eat, and I'll give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, Even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, 
nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Now, there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. Also, they told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, Come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you. Nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore your body will not be buried in the tomb of your father's. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion which has mauled him and killed him, as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they did so. And then he went out and found the body thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, led it on the donkey, and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he led the body in his own tomb and mourned over him and said, Oh, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines and the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. 
Even after this, and presumably Jeroboam heard the whole story, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And at that time, Abijah, Jeroboam's son, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet, is there. The one who told me I would be king over this people. That's the one who tore up his new cloak and gave Jeroboam ten of the pieces. Take ten loaves of bread with you. I wonder why ten. Some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son for he is ill and you're going to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols of metal. You have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last meal in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. The birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. And as for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. I don't know whether you're familiar with that story or not and the tale of the two prophets. It's really quite a remarkable story. I wonder what questions it raises for you as you read that. What gaps in the story would you really like to have filled so that you could know some of the detail and get some more of the background of of what was actually going on there? I read a story like that and I spend so long just wondering, daydreaming about the scenarios, about all the information, how it was passed, about all the things that happened. It just seems to open up so many interesting avenues to think about. But what do you think is going on? Why is this story told to us? Why the story of the tale of the two prophets? I mean, you could skip chapter 13, really. As you will do as you read through the rest of the book of 1 Kings. Because chapter 13 is, is an incredible amount of detail about these two men and what happened. Normally in the rest of the book of Kings and Chronicles, it will simply say, And the Lord disposed of, or and so and so was raised up, and... It's a fascinating story and a fascinating insight. I hope it's raised lots of questions for you because I'm not even going to bother trying to answer them. 
But I would love you to go and think about them. And I'd love to hear what some of your questions are. I'd love to hear the things that make you angry as you hear that story. Because I suspect some things are bound to make you angry. I wonder what you think is humorous in it. Because there is humor in it as well. I wonder what you think about the overall fairness of it all. I wonder what you think about God when you read a story like that. Let me take one approach to it, which is just to draw a few lessons from a few of the people. One of the key players in this story, clearly, even though he doesn't feature hugely in chapter 13, is Jeroboam. Potentially, the man was a second Joseph, going to be one of the great figures, and he does become one of the great figures, but for all the wrong reasons in the history of the people of Israel. He was clearly gifted, he was clearly able, he was clearly very suitable for the task, and clearly, as a young man working under Solomon, he was upright, he was worthy of God's call on his life and God calling him to do this particular task. But it seems to me that he allows his own strategic thinking, his own competence, to replace his faith in God. I think he was right. I think he was right about the possibilities of what would happen as the people would endlessly go up to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts and go up and celebrate Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and all the rest of it. I'm sure it's true that if people became at all dissatisfied with their lot, if the economics of the situation wasn't working out quite right, they probably would start hankering a bit after the glory days. We all do that. There comes a certain point in life when the good old days seem to have been the best days. And all these young ones, and all this change, and all this stuff. You know, and it happens with nations as much as it happens. People rewrite history. There are all kinds of myths that enter the popular psyche. And the past always seems to have been better. I think he was probably right to be concerned. But once he had taken the path of sorting the problem out for himself, and sorting it out in a way that was contrary to everything he knew about God, He was in serious trouble. Serious trouble. I think there's a lesson for life here. Stick to what you know to be right. Stick to what you know to be right. Stick to what God's word says, even if you can't see how it will work out in the end. Don't let impatience, your own ability or fear, distract you from doing what is right and obeying God's word. It made me think of another incident. Another incident recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16. And Peter has just had his eyes opened. Peter, the disciple, has just realized that the person in front of him is not just Jesus of Nazareth, whom he deeply uh, admires and loves and follows and believes to be the Messiah, but he's the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Deliverer, the Promised One. And then Jesus begins to unpack for him something of what that means in his case, which means death at the hands of his own people. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord. It's not going to happen that way. And Jesus tells him to get behind him. Because Peter has in mind the things of men and not the things of God. Rather like Jeroboam. Rather like me. Rather like you. Because we very often have in mind the things of men, the fears, the insecurities, the arrogance, the things that mark our human nature and our human ability. And sometimes 
we no longer put our faith in God. What about the man of God? This mysterious character who comes onto the pages of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 13, whose name we don't know. Very unusual not to be given the name of somebody who plays such a critical part. I mean, we get the pedigree of most people who are involved in the key issues of Scripture, but not this. He's simply the man of God from Judah. I think he was incredibly courageous. He had just walked across from Judah. Everybody knew he was from the south. Everybody knew he belonged to Rehoboam and the opposition, even if it had been a bloodless coup and a bloodless civil uh, breaking up of 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 the state. But here he comes over from Judah. He walks into Bethel. The king is about to inaugurate this new whole new religion thing that he's about to do. And he walks right up through the middle of it all pretty poor security obviously and he just lets fly at the king and at the altar the man must have had incredible nerve you don't do a thing like that unless you have tremendous courage and faith in God he's like a kind of Elijah Elijah is the only other person in that kind of category I can think of with the capacity and the courage to do something like that and then we find him being obedient to God and going home by a different way and we find him under an oak tree and some people say well you see that's a metaphor for the beginning of his disobedience you know he was told to keep going he wasn't told to stop and he was only six miles from the border all he had to do was walk six miles and he was home and dry but he was disobedient well I'm not so sure I don't think it's a metaphor for disobedience I think it's more a metaphor for vulnerability I mean if you just walked into this scene if it was you And you had been asked to go to the opposition, this new king, into the middle of all of this, and bring God's judgment on the situation. And come out with a message that says the altar will split and the ashes will be poured on the ground. If this was you who was called to do that, and you actually had the courage to go and do it, and then it all happened, and instead of being killed, you're walking home, I think you'd need a rest. I think the man was gutted emotionally, physically, spiritually. I think he just needed to sit down, which is what he had. But I think it is a metaphor for vulnerability, and all of us do reach points of vulnerability in life. Whether it's because of emotional issues, or spiritual issues, or physical issues. And his mistake in this situation was to defer to someone who, in the normal course of things, he would have respected and deferred to, but who was telling him something contrary to what he knew God's word to be. When the old prophet comes, the young prophet defers to him, which would have been the respectful thing to do. He had just turned down the king's invitation, but now he's going to accept the old prophet's invitation, which is going to be just as dangerous. It's always a problem in life. This kind of vulnerability, this kind of moment when things have been going well or you've run well or you've worked hard or whatever, there's always moments of vulnerability.